Welcome to another episode of The Breakdown. This is our first episode since the provincial budget came out. And one of the things that we're going to be trying to do over the next few episodes is picking a couple of things to talk about so that we can go into some detail with them and try to make sense about them. This episode, we're going to be talking about the review of the supervised consumption sites. We're also going to be taking a look at the overall reaction to the budget and some of the things contained in the budget that we've seen across the province, including the major protest that happened in Calgary just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, So please stay tuned. It's time for the breakdown. Before we get too far into this episode, though, we wanted to kind of touch back to one of the topics that we talked about on our last episode, and that's the Tech Frontier Mine. Now, you might remember in our last episode, we predicted that the Tech Frontier Mine likely wouldn't go ahead because the CEO of Tech even said that there wasn't a good economic case for it. Well, Tech finally pulled the trigger and they pulled the plug on Tech Frontier. Now, there's a lot of different political organizations that have tried to do what they can to spin the whole cancellation of the tech mine to their advantage, but Tech was actually very, very clear in a letter that they released. Fundamentally, the tech mine was canceled for two reasons. First of all, it wasn't economically viable. The price of oil currently just didn't support going ahead with the project. But secondary to that, the other big challenge that Tech had in going ahead with the mine was that because there's very little environmental framework in Alberta particularly, but Canada needs to do a better job as well in regards to dealing with climate change and dealing with global warming, they couldn't support a case for it right now. And in fact, if you take a look where Tech's next big investment was after they cancelled the Tech Frontier mine, it was actually a solar farm in BC. So big companies like Tech, big energy companies like Tech, are starting to recognize that we need to do a much better job of coming up with a comprehensive plan plan to dealing with the problem of climate change. And until Alberta starts to do a much better job of that, we're not going to see any of these major companies putting in the kind of major investments that our economy needs. The long-awaited review of the supervised consumption sites has been released by the provincial government. And as expected for a one-sided review, the results were very, very one-sided. Now, you might remember that when the panel was convened in order to take a look at the impact of supervised consumption sites, or SCS, uh, they were convened specifically being told only to look at the negative social impacts and the negative economic impacts of supervised consumption sites. Uh, Well, they've done exactly that. Although some of their sources are a little bit questionable. There's a whole lot of problems with this report and academics across the province are raising a lot of questions as are addictions experts, as are physicians. Whether we're talking about the fact that the report actually tried to use an article from Avenue Magazine to uh, back up the belief that there's been economic downturn, even though Avenue Magazine actually said in their own article the reason for that was too many restaurants. It had nothing to do with the supervised consumption site. Uh, Whether we're talking about that or whether we're talking about the fact that it seems like there were some panel members who weren't even aware of what uh, the role of oxygen is in dealing with opiate overdoses. And in fact, here's a clip we want to show you from the release. The other responses, such as the oxygen, was that life-saving? In a lot of cases, it was not. How do you know that? That was recorded and reported in the data that we uh, collected. We heard it from um, individuals at the sites as well. So, staff members. They said he administered oxygen, turns out we didn't need to? 
Uh, you can refer to the report for further information on that. Do you have the answer? Can you answer the question? Would you like to ask the question again? Um, yes, I asked, um, in the cases where they administered oxygen, was that life-saving? Or did they say, oh, we didn't need to? You said, no, that's not what saved their life. And I said, oh, did they say, oops, I guess we didn't need to? No. So what was said was the, com the committee heard from individuals at the site when we asked the questions about these administrations of oxygen or pats on the back, it was merely that a staff member, and that doesn't mean that that staff member could have been a support staff, would see that an individual's eyes might have closed, and at which case they would administer oxygen not because they were requested to by the user of the site, but because they felt it might assist the user of the site. Can we go? We're going to go to the next question, please. Can we, uh, we're, we're going to go to the next question. Are these exaggerated accounts of reversals? Yes. I'm saying that it's inaccurate what we found. And do we have other questions? Now, this is one of those rare instances where I can actually speak with some authority on this. As a practicing paramedic in the province of Alberta for the last 10 years, I can tell you with 100% confidence that one of the very first things that I do when I'm treating a victim of an opiate overdose is I apply oxygen. Let's be clear. The reason that people die overwhelmingly from opiate overdoses is because it takes away a person's innate desire to breathe or their drive to breathe. So they fall asleep and then they just stop breathing. They don't get enough oxygen into their system. Getting them oxygen early can prevent what's a relatively mild overdose from turning into a potentially fatal overdose. So how a panel member could stand and say that oxygen wasn't a life-changing intervention that was applied is really quite mysterious. So let's be really clear. This report was designed from the very beginning to paint supervised consumption sites in a negative light. When the government mandated that this panel could only look at the negative impacts of supervised consumption sites, they guaranteed that whatever was produced wouldn't have any context. The reality is right now, supervised consumption sites, harm reduction, and as well as all of the, the current knowledge about how addictions work and how there's no such thing as a one-size-fits-all treatment model is all very much under attack. But nowhere is the fact that supervised consumption sites are under attack more obvious and more literal than in Lethbridge, Alberta. In Lethbridge, at the supervised consumption site there, and actually on the same day that a major protest happened across the province, including in Lethbridge, that was partly fueled by people's concerns about the government's stance towards supervised consumption sites, this was found. This is a real military mortar. This was found in the garbage can right beside the front door of the supervised consumption site. And there was a second one that was found not very far away. This is military-grade uh, ammunition that somebody has left at these sites. Now, while this story did get some media attention, it didn't get a whole lot and it didn't seem to get a whole lot of traction, which is really bizarre when you think about it, because a literal military-grade bomb, two of them, in fact, were left in a public space where protesters had been just a couple of hours earlier. Now, the reality is, is if somebody had left two military-grade bombs at a, a public school or a, a recreation center or anything like that, uh, people would have been calling it terrorism and it would have been all over the news. So we're forced to ask the question, why is it that this wasn't? And the answer, unfortunately, is really quite simple. To a lot of Albertans, the lives of people who use supervised consumption sites are simply worth less.
And that's a real problem for this province because it's one of the questions that we have to answer as we go ahead because we're only heading into harder economic times over the next couple of years is what kind of province do we want to be? Do we want to be the kind of province that values every life or do we want to be the kind of province that picks and chooses and places greater value on some people's lives and less value on others? The provincial budget has been released and people's reactions to it, uh, whether positive or negative, are definitely very strong. Now there's a couple of things to know about this provincial budget and like we said earlier, uh, we're going to try to cover off some of the major topics of this provincial budget uh, as we go through the next few episodes because we want to try to go in depth on some of these things. But there have been a lot of cuts made in this provincial budget, whether we're talking about cuts to low-income housing, whether or not we're talking about significant cuts to firefighter training. Uh, in a province that has a very long and bad history with wildfires, whether we're talking about a $4 million additional cut to the Calgary police budget because of changes to revenue, there are some major, major cuts. Um, One of the other things that was interesting about this budget is we finally did get the answer to the question uh, that we asked last episode about the changing of the ACE schedule. It turns out, as we could see in the provincial budget, where they bragged about the fact that they saved over $60 million through the scheduling change, that all of the inconvenience and hardship and quite frankly, evictions that some of the people on Aish have had to deal with since that change has been made were made only to try to save a little bit of money through a bookkeeping game. Uh, So this budget has a lot of problems. But at the end of the day, one of the biggest problems with the provincial budget is really starting to be highlighted over the last couple of days. Uh, This provincial budget is predicated largely on the assumption that oil prices not only will stay stable, but they will actually go up considerably, almost $10 a barrel. Now, the problem that we run into with that is that if oil prices don't go up that high, we're not going to be able to meet the budget that uh, has been set out and it's going to end up costing Albertans a lot of money. Well, things are actually going to get even worse because Over the weekend, the Saudis and the Russians have started a huge price war over the cost of oil, and they are increasing their production at rates that we've never really even seen before. And with that, they're going to be driving the prices way down low for oil across the entire globe. This is one of the reasons why it's really important to realize that when we're talking about Alberta's ability to operate in the global economy, it's not something that can be controlled by any given government. But unfortunately, because the UCP government and Jason Kenney's government has built a budget that's predicated on improvement when we're going to see the exact opposite, it puts the provincial budget in a lot of trouble. Now, with this new provincial budget, we're also seeing the start of a new legislative session, and the UCP have definitely come out swinging with the bills that they're introducing this time around. If we take a look at Bill 1, for example, the Critical Infrastructure Defense Act, this is an act that uh, the UCP are claiming is supposed to prevent critical infrastructure and supposed to limit protests that would in any way impede Alberta's ability to do its economic business. Um, It's a bit of a strange bill because in some places it's duplicating existing legislation at the federal level and in other places is actually contradicting existing federal legislation, particularly around the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and the Freedom of Assembly. But what's most alarming about Bill 1 is it gives the government the ability to declare anything, any part of the province, uh, any property whatsoever, essential infrastructure. That means that they have the ability to say that 
your house, for example, could be essential infrastructure, or any public street can be considered essential infrastructure. This really impedes citizens' abilities to protest, and like I said, it's actually out of line with the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. It's long been ruled that public roads are a place where people are allowed to protest, and trying to build a law in Alberta that contravenes what the Charter of Rights and Freedoms say as rights of every Albertan and every Canadian is a real cause for concern. One of the other developments that's come out of this new provincial budget is the announcement that the government's going to be discontinuing the Early Childhood Education Accreditation Program. This is a program that's been in place for about 16 years, and functionally what it's designed to do is make sure that if a child care program is offering an educational component to what they're offering parents, uh, that that educational pro component meets certain benchmarks. It's one of the things that sets aside just child care providers from child care providers that are trying to get kids an early start. With this program being removed, there won't be any standards for any sort of educational component that will uh, exist within these programs. Um, the reasons why the UCP say that they've made this change is, first of all, uh, because it saves a whole $3 million uh, a year in administration costs, um, which is interesting because they're still spending $30 million a year on that war room of theirs. Uh, but secondary to that, what they're claiming is that it releases these programs from an administrative burden uh, and it will give them more time to take care of these kids. Now given that this whole program was designed as a safeguard to make sure that if parents were paying for an educational program they were getting a program that met again certain standards one can't help but wonder if a business isn't capable of meeting their business requirements. So that would be all of the, the paperwork and, and work that's required to get this accreditation, as well as at the same time providing their core business, which is taking care of the kids. Doesn't that already suggest that that business is having a bit of a problem running their own business? So it, one can't help but wonder why it is that the UCP government has decided to remove this incredibly important program that provides really important benchmarks for kids at a very young age. One of the stories that's gotten a lot of attention over the last couple of months, actually, is the fact that physicians in Alberta have been due to have a renegotiation with the Alberta government in regards to what their master agreement looks like. Now, for those of you that don't know, the master agreement is what determines what physicians can bill the government for and how much they get paid when they do that. The negotiations on that have been very stop and start, uh, and there's been a lot of tension involved on them. But things really escalated when on February 20th, Health Minister Tyler Shandro ripped up that entire agreement and just announced that this is how they were going to do things and provided physicians with an entirely new billing model. This billing model presents a lot of problems for physicians as well as for patients. Now the changes that have been made to the billing practices are having a major impact on doctors' abilities to run successful businesses uh, as well as to make ends meet. And this has caused a lot of different problems. Uh, whether or not it's physicians who aren't coming to the province, and we've certainly seen examples of those, or physicians straight up closing practices and leaving the province to go to areas where they're able to run a business more effectively. We're seeing a lot of that going on too. And this is a real problem because in the face of all of this going on, COVID-19 or the coronavirus is quickly creeping up in the background. 
Now, to be clear, we don't want to be doing any fear-mongering here. For the vast majority of people out there, the symptoms of COVID-19 or the coronavirus will be fairly mild. They'll be the equivalent of a, a really just a cold. But when we're talking about people who are immunocompromised or people who have respiratory conditions, particularly the old and the young, that's where the symptoms start to get a lot more serious. It's also important to realize that when we're talking about COVID-19, this is a virus that we don't have any sort of treatment for other than effectively symptom management. And what we're seeing in countries that are being really hard hit by COVID-19 so far is that a lot of the patients who are getting big sick are requiring significant resources from the healthcare system, whether that's ICU beds, whether that's ventilators. There's a lot of different pieces of equipment that are required to manage a patient who's having serious uh, reactions to the COVID-19 virus. And that's going to present a significant drain on our healthcare system. It's important to realize that when we're talking about who's going to be managing all of those machines, who's going to be managing all of those decisions about what patients get admitted and what sort of treatments are appropriate, we're talking about doctors. So at a time when we're about to face probably one of the bigger healthcare crises that our province has seen in the certainly the last decade or so, the government is actively chasing doctors out of the province. It seems like, for the last couple of decades at least, every government has had to face some sort of a crisis. Whether we're talking about the floods in Calgary, whether we're talking about the fires in Fort Mac, or whether we're talking about the long-standing economic crises that our province has faced, the reality is every government has had their first real big test of some kind with some kind of a disaster. And it's very quickly looking like this UCP government is going to have to face a disaster that's not just the economic side, with the price of oil going through the floor, but also with the COVID-19 virus and the significant drain on our already heavily drained healthcare system that that's going to present. The good news is that late a couple of days ago, it was announced that uh, the government and the physicians are going to be sitting back down to the table and seeing if they can work out any kind of agreement. And that's optimistic and it's hopeful, but it's important to realize that it's not necessarily a new agreement. We're still dealing with a government that ripped up the master agreement and dictated what its own rules for billing were going to be. To get a little bit more uh, context and to get a little bit more information about everything that's been going on with physicians in the province, we actually met up with Dr. Jillian Ratty. Dr. Jillian Ratty is a physician in Calgary who has been holding pop-up protests across from the Sheldon Schumer for quite a few weeks and quite a few months now, actually, uh, in protest of the steps that the UCP government has been making towards healthcare. Here's that interview. So I'm here today with Dr. Jillian Raddy. Is I'm saying that correctly? Yes, yes, Perfect. You are. Excellent. Uh, we're here at one of your pop-up protests, and my understanding is you've been doing these for quite a while. Can you start by telling me what a pop-up protest is? Sure. Well, essentially, uh, when this government got elected and started uh, doing things that I really disagreed with, I felt quite powerless about it all, and so I thought to myself, you know, what can I do about this? I don't really know how to have my voice heard. I don't really know what to do, but I have to do something. And, um, you know, I'm a mother. I've got four tiny kids. My oldest is seven, and uh, I have no time, frankly, for most kinds of advocacy because I have a busy life. And so I thought to myself, well, I do have a lunch hour. Um, and I can spend half an hour a couple times a week um, just standing outside and talking to people. And uh, for me, that's just been kind of an outlet in a political environment that's been quite upsetting to watch with lots of cuts happening to healthcare, education, 
um, and then a government who's kind of denying that they're cutting anything the whole time and a lot of lies and a really, really upsetting political environment. So for me, it's been a way to um, just come out and speak what I'm thinking and know that uh, while we're watching kind of all this chaos and all of this destruction of public services, that at least I stood on the street corner with a sign and I said something. I said it was wrong. It might not do anything and that's okay, but at least I was here and I know that I've done something. Okay. Now, judging from the white coat, uh, you've got a little bit of a background in this as well. So you're a physician. Can you tell me what kind of physician you are and the environment that you work in? Yeah, I'm a family physician. I work across the street at the Sheldon Schumer Center. And there's a teaching clinic for family medicine residents on the eighth floor. So I have a small practice up there. And then I also teach medical students and residents pretty much all the time while I'm in clinic. Perfect. Um, so that being said, we are across the street from the Sheldon Schumer. How afraid should I be right now? I hear so many Which horrors. Which fear would you like to talk about? <laughs> uh, well, we've, we've, we've heard all of these horror stories about uh, the, the SES. Uh, yeah, and yeah, you, yeah. you come out here all the time. Yes, how, how afraid yes. have you been oh, in the course oh, of this? Oh, well, no. I mean, I've got zero fear whatsoever about the safe consumption site. I think that is not where any Albertans' fear should lie. Uh, you know, I think I, I, to be fair, from a community perspective, I think that we're often alienated from our neighbors and we're often alienated specifically for our, from our neighbors who are homeless and who have problems with addictions. And so encountering people who are homeless or who have addictions can be kind of, um, you know, it's, it's, a bit of a, it's a bit of a different situation and it can be tough for some people to, to navigate just the unknown, I think. Okay. But as a physician, I work with people from all backgrounds and especially in this neighborhood, which is their neighborhood. This has always been their neighborhood. Um, and I've worked in their neighborhood for quite some time now. I have had tons of interactions as a medical professional and as just somebody walking down the street. And I have never had any personal major threats at all. Um, and I just consider the people who use that site to be part of the community. And uh, honestly, standing out here gives me an opportunity to talk to them more than I even normally would in my clinic upstairs. And I think that's a great thing. And um, we have good chats about policy and then they're scared about the safe consumption site getting closed and they're angry about cuts to healthcare, just like the rest of us. Uh, and they have viewpoints that are worth hearing. So no, I don't have any fear. I think that, um, you know, I think that the solution here is more community communication and more times where we can all get together, including our homeless, uh, our homeless neighbors and our neighbors who are struggling with addiction. And we all just need to get to know each other better. Okay. Does this protest today, you've got some people out with you today, does this protest today carry a specific message or is it about a specific issue? I see some, obviously some healthcare cuts, uh, signs, uh, in light of the provincial budget coming out yesterday, is there a particular message that you'd like Albertans to hear in regards to what your concerns are and what your fellow protesters' concerns are? Uh, you know, there's almost too many to really discuss with you. I suspect you don't have enough time for me to list all of them. So maybe I'll pick a couple. Um, my number one message is I'm quite frightened about the state of democracy fundamentally in Alberta. And I think that this government is uh, intent on disseminating misinformation and uh, the, the way that they lie overtly is significantly different from other governments. I think there's a perception among the popula population that all politicians lie and therefore somehow they're all just as bad. But 
this government is objectively, fundamentally worse when it comes to spreading disinformation. And um, to the point where they're saying there are no cuts when there clearly are, and there is clearly pain to be had, and they double down and say, no, 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 it's not happening. That's just unbelievable. It is anti-democratic. Um, and that combined with the fact that they shut down the investigation into their own bad activities during the UCP leadership race is should be quite shocking for Albertans. Um, and again, combined with Bill 1 about to be passed around restrictions around protest. You're not supposed to restrict protest in a democracy, and that's exactly what they're doing. So I guess number one message to Albertans is, our democracy is in a state where we need to pay attention and we really need to be involved because if we are not, we are going to lose it. And this is a party that is quite obviously trying to push the envelope and trying to subvert democracy for their own political ends. Now my second and final for you is healthcare because I'm a physician. And um, physician compensation is a big issue right now. And the government just tore up the agreement it had with the Alberta Medical Association and with physicians around compensation. And they imposed a new contract um, without taking into consideration much of what we had to say about that. So that's a huge blow to collective bargaining that is definitely scaring teachers, nurses, and any other public sector workers. Um, now this, I want to make clear, is not about what doctors are paid. It is about an employer coming to you one day at your job and saying you're gonna get probably a 30 to 50 percent pay cut but we're not exactly sure how much and you won't really find out until uh, the day it happens maybe even later not really sure um, this is about an employer essentially disrespecting you to your face and it's a situation where most people would look at that person and say no I'm out of here I'm out of here I'm done You've disrespected me so badly that I don't even want to talk to you. Um, so yeah, physicians are getting a big pay cut and it's of the magnitude that physicians are saying, I just want to get out of here, and, like anybody would in that sort of situation. And that is meant to cause chaos in the system. That is meant to take the fundamental actors within the system, or pardon me, nurses, uh, it's meant to take some of the most fundamental actors in the system, and pardon me, all other healthcare workers, it's to, but it's meant to take some of the most fundamental people in the system, push them out of the province, and make the public system into a mess so that people think we need private healthcare. And I fundamentally disagree with that. Private healthcare has been shown to be more expensive and less accessible to the masses, and I am completely opposed to it. So when you look at doctor compensation discussions in the news, uh, in social media, I want you to know that this is not about what doctors are getting paid. This is about dismantling the system. And if you care about public health care, you should be very concerned. And that's why everybody should come to the rally and the protest marches tomorrow, starting at 11 a.m. at Western Canada High School, proceeding to the Sheldon Schumer around noon and on to City Hall around 1.30. Perfect. Two other questions, if I may, real quick. One of the, the big issues that certainly come up that a lot of people seem to have some misconceptions about is the whole idea of complex modifiers and physicians using those uh, tools to, to bill more than they're deserved. To the Albertans out there who believe that physicians are taking advantage of billing codes in order to bilk the system, what would you say to them? 
I would say that that is a government message that was specifically propagated outside of negotiations prior to them ripping up our contract in order to create the public perception that doctors are billing fraudulently in order for them to cut us such that the public wouldn't be too angry about it. I think that was a very specific political message to vilify physicians. Um, over many months that message has been propagated and it is false and it is part of a larger goal, just as I said before, to cause chaos in the system, drive doctors out, pave the way for privatization. So no, we are not billing fraudulently when we bill a complex modifier. The contract that we both signed, the government and physicians, says that if you spend more than 15 minutes with a patient, you should be able to bill one complex modifier. And that's what's in the contract. So if we spend more than 15 minutes with a patient and we bill that modifier, it is definitely not a fraudulent use of that modifier. They, the government has twisted the notion of complex modifier. They are talking about it as if it is meant to be only used for complex patients, whatever they seem to define that as, who knows? I don't think they have any clue what a complex patient is. But they're saying that we're using it for all the normal patients and not the complex patients. But frankly, even a normal patient, um, you know, if they have a mental health crisis on top of their uncontrolled diabetes, that's going to take more than 10 minutes, more than 10 minutes, more than 15 minutes, if I'm going to do a good job with it. Yeah. Oh, and I have paperwork too. Don't forget that. So, I mean, I can go much further into the details. I mean, a 15 minute appointment with a complex modifier gives me about 50 bucks. Um, so, you know, if you see four patients that are worth 15 minutes, that's 200 bucks for an hour. Um, but then most family physicians have a whole office to pay for. I'm not, you know, the average family doctor's not taking home 200 bucks an hour. No way. They're taking home 65 or 70% of that. Then they're paying their own personal taxes. So, um, I think that this idea of the really rich doctor who's fraudulently billing the system is a wholly a government construct that is meant to bolster their own positions around cutting physician pay, forcing physicians out, and creating chaos in a system in order to privatize. Last question I have for you. Um, one of the criticisms that's been leveled against you and some of your fellow protesters, but specifically you, has been that because you have previously ran for the NDP, you have a huge bias in this and you shouldn't, oh. you shouldn't speak on it. Oh, yeah. So I'm just curious, how long do you think after somebody's run for public office should they wait before they speak publicly <laughs> about issues again? So I'm going to reframe that slightly, but I appreciate the frame you gave it. Um, I think that everybody all the time should be speaking out politically. I think that part of the problems that we're seeing with democracy in Alberta are due to the fact that very few people speak out at all, ever. And very few people engage with their elected officials ever. And so elected officials have got to the place where they don't think they have to listen to anybody because nobody talks to them. Or at least only some people talk to them. The people that they think are, are important. So, you know, um, I, I think that everybody should always be allowed to speak. I think the fact that I am a new Democrat doesn't mean that my opinion means nothing. I think that we should all be allowed to say what we think. And I think that just because I have a political affiliation doesn't mean I don't have something useful to say. 
and that the government is continually trying to imply that I have nothing useful to say simply because I belong to the opposition party is deeply troubling and also reflective of the degradation of democracy in this province. So you wouldn't say that there should be a waiting period then? Ah, no, of course not. Matt, no. that one's for you. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate this. And thank you for all the people who have agreed to be on camera. And we'll see you tomorrow. Absolutely. Awesome. Thanks, thank you so much. Nice to meet you. So to be really, really clear, that big rally that Jillian mentioned in the interview is actually past. It happened a couple of weekends ago. So unless you're hoping to hold a pop-up protest like the ones that she's been holding, uh, we don't recommend that you go to those places at those times because you won't see anybody there except for probably yourself. But we did attend the, the rally and the protest to try to get a little bit of context on what was going on. So the rally started at Western Canadian High School and then traveled to the Sheldon Schumer and then from there went to City Hall. In total, between 2,000 and 3,000 people showed up at the rally and their feelings about this budget and this government were pretty clear early on. What was most remarkable about the protest to us, though, was that despite the fact that the people who attended were clearly passionate about their concerns, at no point during this rally or protest did we see any kind of violence. We did, however, get a chance to catch up with support our students and get a few words from them. ...public education system, and as a citizens' action group, we work tirelessly to support and reclaim public education in the face of this government's persistent attacks. We're here with Barbara Silver right now from Support Our Students. Uh, Barbara just finished giving a rousing speech to a crowd that some people are estimating between 2,000 to 3,000 people who have shown up to protest the budget and the direction that the UCP government is trying to take our province. Barbara, what's your read on this protest today? I think it's great. I think it's the beginning of a lot of things to come. I think people are realizing, particularly since the budget on Thursday, that cuts uh, are going to be deeper than originally expected and that no stone is left unturned here. They are affecting nurses, doctors, families, educational assistants. Uh, everyone's going to be affected. Okay. Is there a single message that you'd like Albertans to hear in regards to the work that Support Our Students is trying to do in light of the budget, in light of the cuts? Yeah, I mean, we are trying really to get people um, active and engaged in their democracy. At the end of the day, the government represents Albertans and currently they're not representing that will. And so uh, the idea is that 94% of the student population is in public education. We have more power than, than we know, and that's where SOS Alberta comes in, is to, is to give people that power back. Perfect. If somebody challenged you to say one good thing about the provincial budget, what do you think you'd be able to say? Wow, that's putting me on the spot. Uh, the one good thing is that they did it early. I guess, so it gives us more time to organize, more time to, to realize and speak with our principals and our parent councils and realize how this is going to affect us come September. It gives us more time to organize. Excellent. Thank you very much. Thank you. So the good news is we're actually going to be catching up with support our students on our next episode to get an in-depth analysis on the changes in our education system with this new budget.
with the provincial budget being announced and with the new legislative session starting up, we saw a lot of political parties doing everything that they could to try to get some attention on social media. Social media, as most of you are aware, this is where you're watching us, is where most people get a lot of their information. And that's got pros and cons to it. But one of the things that can end up happening is political parties show up to the table and they aren't particularly prepared. Uh, we have a couple examples that we want to share of political parties doing social media really, really badly, and that reflecting not only on them, but in our last few examples, reflecting on the entire province. So the first example that we want to talk about is uh, David Kahn and the Alberta Liberals prepared a shadow throne speech. So for those of you that aren't aware, when the legislative session kicks off, there's typically a throne speech that sort of sets the tone for how the government is going to be doing things. Uh, the Liberals don't currently have any seats in the legislature, so they're doing what they can to try to, to stay relevant and to stay in the media. And part of that was this uh, shadow throne speech. But unfortunately, as you can see, when we tried to click on the link that was provided in David Kahn's tweet, it didn't actually go anywhere. And we tried this a couple of different ways to try to make sure that we weren't doing something wrong, but it still didn't go anywhere. So that's a bit of a pretty big misstep for the Liberals to make right out of the right out of the gates with the new legislative session. But they were not to be outdone. Now, we got in a little bit of trouble on social media ourselves because during the budget release, the Alberta Party released a few tweets that were really badly formatted and put quotation marks and apostrophes in places that they just don't normally go. Um, and then we made a couple of jokes at their expense on that. But it seems like their strategy in mitigating that social media mistake was to just double down hard. So there were two things that the Alberta party did over the last couple of weeks that were really embarrassing for the party. The first one was uh, acting leader of the Alberta party, Jackie Fenske, was, is touring the province and she's trying to get to know Albertans and meet new Albertans and build the party up. Uh, and that's just fine, but you have to know the places where you're allowed to do that. One of those places where you're definitely not allowed to campaign is anywhere on Alberta Health Services property. You might remember in the last election, uh, one of the political parties in our province got in a whole lot of trouble because it appeared that they were using Alberta Health Services facilities to try and campaign, which is a huge big no-no. AHS has a bunch of internal policies that make it very, very clear that you can't film on their property or use their uh, hospitals or anything else as a backdrop for political campaigning. Not only because it puts the, the hospitals and AHS in something of an unethical position, but there's also a very real concern about patient privacy when you start to film in and around hospitals. Now, some of this might seem really obvious to the average bystander, but apparently it wasn't obvious to Jackie Fenske and the Alberta Party because as you can see here, they filmed a promotional video right outside the front doors of the Peter Lougheed Hospital here in Calgary. Um, like I said, this is a huge violation of AHS policies, and it just is yet another example of how the Alberta Party isn't necessarily ready for prime time. But we're not done with the Alberta Party yet because they doubled down shortly after that. Leading up to the same protest that we covered earlier, the Alberta Party did have some members that attended that protest. And that's great, that's fine. Um, but the Alberta Party's spin on that was really quite unusual. Rather than simply retweeting their party members who attended the, the protest uh, and talking about 
being active in a grassroots, uh, they decided to also reference the fact that Alberta Party members participated in the convoy. For those of you that don't know, the convoy was the United Reroll convoy where a bunch of disgruntled Albertans got into pickup trucks and heavy trucks uh, and even a fire truck and drove all the way from Alberta to Ottawa. This convoy got in a lot of trouble and outside of Alberta and even inside of Alberta, it's got a pretty bad reputation and there's a lot of really good reasons for that. Not only was the convoy aggressively co-opted by the Yellow Vesters, but it also included images of people trying to lynch the Prime Minister. Uh, and even then, once the convoy was just about halfway through, there were a lot of accusations about the convoy organizer trying to defraud the people who were riding in the convoy and not paying them the gas and the hotel room that he promised them. So the convoy at best was a public relations disaster. Why the Alberta Party would try to tie themselves to that as an example of the good work that they intend to do in the province of Alberta is a real question. Now it's important to realize that some of these posts that we've talked about were deleted and were removed, which is good because it means that the parties that we're talking about recognize their mistakes. It's also important to realize that these parties are being run largely by volunteers. Uh, and while one would hope that a political party that is claiming to be able to form government in the next election would have uh, a little bit more attention to detail with their communication strategies, it's easy to see how some of these mistakes could be made. They don't have the same resources that parties that have MLAs do have. So if we really want to highlight just how bad social media has gotten in this province, you can't really find a better example than the press secretaries for the United Conservative Party government. They've earned themselves quite a reputation for saying terrible, terrible things on social media and being quite rude to people on social media. These are people who are representatives of the government and these are people who are representatives of their respective ministers and ministries. And it seems like somewhere along the way, the idea that you need to have an adult conversation and you should present yourself professionally has gone right out the window. So in order to try to maybe provide a little bit of course correction for some of these press secretaries who appear to have gotten a little bit lost, we couldn't think of anyone better to help us with that than some Grammys. The Breakdown is proud to introduce the following segment and would like to thank the time and the energy of the Calgary chapter of the Raging Grannies for trying to bring a little bit of civility and, dare we say it, decorum back to Alberta politics. Uh, uh, a few weeks ago, pretty much all of Canada was concerned about what was happening with the Wet'suwet'en territories. Uh, the Wet'suwet'en, they had every good reason not to want to have something just plowed through their territory without their saying yes or no. Perfectly valid. We have rec reconciliation in this country. People protested in favor of supporting the Wet'suwet'en people. And uh, oh, I think we all remember in Charlottesville when, when a car went plowing through the protesters and uh, a young woman was killed. Yes, she was a lefty, I bet, Matt Wolf. So you have good reason to be angry at her. And so what do you write after that car plowed through protesters in Regina? You wrote, investigating a car? Driving on a road? Yeah, what you worry that maybe somebody be killed while they're protesting if they're lefties. 
and somebody thinks it's good to tweet this. Because nothing says dedication to the cause like an opioid overdose. Really? So just wanting to respond to a couple of um, back and forth tweets from Katie Merrifield. Um, the first one was in response to a person writing about how a significant amount of time is, goes towards propping up Matt Wolf tweets. Her response was, many thanks for the compelling observation, you sad, sexist, basement-dwelling mouth breather. Oh, Katie, oh dear, oh dear. I'm not really sure how we can even begin to unpack that really deep, horrible tweet. Okay, Matt Wolf. I think he's my favorite tweeter. I'm paying him, what, almost $200,000 a year for him to write brilliant, brilliant tweets. Here he is. Always wonder if some of those leftists who throw around hyperbolic language like alleging a police state are the same types who sympathized with the actual police state regimes behind the Iron Curtain during the Cold War. Really? Really? You honestly think that we're all for the, the, the Stalin's behavior during the Cold War? You really think that? I don't think you know us Albertans very well, Mr. Wolf. Hmm, Brittany Baltimore. I, for one, am really looking forward to watching the failed Lukasik, AB, and the failed at David Kahn continue to duke it out over whatever appointments they are after. Who will be more insufferable with their hypocrisy and grandstanding? Stay tuned to find out. Yeah, no, not interested. Who will get the warmer grading from the PM's office? Greta Thunberg or Jason Kenney? Where is the declaration of an economic emergency in Alberta, as opposed to the sanctimonious declaration of a climate emergency in Parliament? Well, Katie, I know for one thing that Greta is always a polite and conscientious young woman. And lately, it seems like we are not getting that same sort of polite and courteous attitude from Mr. Kenny or some of his other helpers, like you, Katie. I can't even think of something to say to this because it's just that stupid. Delete your tweet, you asshat. <gasps> Wash your mouth out with soap. Okay, I think many of us saw those pictures of what happened in China after the virus hit and everybody had to stay home, they couldn't go to work and suddenly their pollution just cleared right up. Well, that's an interesting thing, but Matt Wolf has quite the take on that. Here we go. This is Matt Wolf's take on the pollution being lifted in China. Q, anti-capitalist green zealots heralding a massive virus outbreak with all the effects on real people as Gaia's revenge. Yeah, that's right, Matt. We're just thrilled out of our minds. What could be nicer than to know that many of us, including us little old ladies with major respiratory diseases, that yeah, we're really looking forward to the coronavirus. Yep, that's right.
And then Samantha Peck. This, this is a good one. This goes back and forth between Samantha Peck and Marie Renault. I actually had no idea that was you. But looking back, it makes sense. The looks were because you spent the entire time sitting on the floor of the chamber. A privilege, by the way, looking at your phone, rolling your eyes at your friend. The lack of manners was atrocious. Marie Renault replies, Baloney, I was sitting two seats away. Here's a photo. All of the guests around us were lovely. Just stop attacking people who disagree with you. Thanks. Another tweet from a public relations person, Michael Solberg. Just take one look at the responses from these well-known NDP proxy accounts. All so brave in their anonymity. And tell me that Twitter isn't a raging dumpster fire full of just the worst kind of assholes. Consider this my request for a thread on what it's like being so bitter you have to lash out at strangers on the internet on the daily. Today, David Egan viciously attacked the first female finance minister in Canadian history. How progressive of that pathetic little man. So just before we wrap up the show, I just wanted to take a quick second to remind everybody that if you have the time and if you can spare the cost of a cup of coffee, please visit our Patreon page and sign up to be a supporter of the show. Um, we're all volunteers here. Nobody's pulling salary down out of this at anything like that. And all of the money that we get through our Patreon page goes towards equipment or goes towards gas money for road trips uh, for stories that we want to do that are outside of the Calgary area. So if you'd like to see us travel around a little bit more, if you'd like to help us do that, please visit the Patreon page and consider being a backer. That's pretty much it for this episode of The Breakdown. On our next episode, we're going to be doing a deep dive on the ACE changes uh, and the impact that the changes to ACE have had on ACE recipients, as well as we're going to be doing a deep dive on the implications that the changes to the budget have on education in our province. That's it for this breakdown. Fusion here.